Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond. Hello and welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's Friday the 8th of April. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today coming to you from London. This week we explore the worrying trend of Arab states cooperating with China in the persecution of Uyghur Muslims. We've also seen more application of surveillance technology for people who participate in the Hajj, for example. There was a report that showed that tracking devices were being applied to Uyghurs to monitor where they were going. And then we speak with the playwright Mona Mansour, ahead of the opening of her new play, The Vagrant Trilogy, which premieres in New York this week. I think the work of writing this play, I think the work of being in close proximity with people from all over the region has changed and continues to change just the way I sort of look at what it is to be sort of Arab American. I mean, But first, a quick look at the biggest headlines from the past week. These are war crimes and it will be recognised by the world as genocide. The words of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky as he visited the Ukrainian town of Bucha outside the capital Kiev, which was reclaimed from Russian forces this week. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has now entered its sixth week. Russian forces have pulled back from a number of areas around the capital Kiev, leaving behind them a trail of death and destruction. The scenes of executed individuals with their hands bound and mass graves has prompted numerous world leaders to brand Russia's actions as war crimes and possibly genocide. The revelations of these crimes pushed the US to impose further sanctions, this time targeting the children of Russian President Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. There have been calls in Europe for a complete ban on all oil and coal imports from Russia. It was reported this week that the EU had paid Russia 35 billion euros for fuel since the start of the invasion, while provided just 1 billion to Ukraine for weapons to defend against the Russian onslaught. As Russia continues to pull back from a number of areas to focus on Ukraine's south, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he feared further evidence of war crimes could be uncovered. With each day, more and more credible reports of rape, killings, torture are emerging. And for every Bucha, there are many more towns Russia has occupied and more towns it is still occupying, places where we must assume Russian soldiers are committing more atrocities right A Turkish court on April 7th confirmed a halt of the trial in absentia of 26 suspects linked to the killing of Saudi critic Jamal Khashoggi and its transfer to Riyadh, a decision that has angered rights groups. The 59-year-old journalist was killed inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd, 2018, in a gruesome murder that shocked the world. A Turkish court began the trial in 2020 
with relations tense between the two Sunni Muslim regional powers. But with Turkey desperate for investment to help pull it out of economic crisis, Ankara has sought to heal the rift with Riyadh. It is highly likely that Jordan's government purchased and used Israeli spyware Pegasus against its own citizens, according to a new report by Frontline Defenders and Citizen Lab. The report, relying on technical analysis of the phones of four victims who were hacked, identified what it believed to be agencies of the Jordanian government using Pegasus since at least August 2019. The report is the strongest evidence so far that the Jordanian government allegedly purchased and used the Israeli spyware nearly two years prior to when most suspected Jordan had bought the spyware. Mohammed al-Muskati, a researcher with frontline defenders who worked on the report, told the New Arab that while it was impossible to say with 100% confidence who was behind the hacks, several factors point to Jordan as the culprit. The Pegasus software, developed by a private Israeli company called the NSO Group, gives hackers access to a phone's entire contents and allows them to use its camera and microphone at will. Israeli police said on April 8th they had shot dead a Palestinian gunman who killed two people and wounded several others in Tel Aviv, sparking an overnight manhunt, the latest in a surge of violence. The attacker had shot at revellers at a bar on the busy Dizengoth Street in the coastal city of Tel Aviv just after 9pm on Thursday, triggering chaos as people fled in panic. This was the fourth fatal attack in Israeli cities in two weeks, with 13 victims killed in the violence. The International Monetary Fund on April 7th announced it had reached a staff-level agreement to provide Lebanon with a $3 billion 46th month financing programme to help it emerge from an economic crisis in a move that comes just a few weeks before the crucial May 15th legislative elections. However, the troubled nation will only get full approval from the fund if Beirut enacts a series of reforms. An agreement with the IMF is seen as vital for Lebanon to begin exiting a crippling economic and financial meltdown that marks its most destabilising crisis since the Civil War. For more of the latest news, analysis and opinion, head over to the new Arab website. Merhaba arkadaşlar. Şimdi ben yeni bir haber aldım. Suudi Arabistan'da tutuklu olan babam Hamdullah Veli ve arkadaş Nur Muhammed Rozi şu anda Suudi Arabistan'daki geri gönderme merkezinde. This is Sumay Hamdullah. On March 31st, she posted this video to Twitter. Sumayi had posted a number of other videos. The message is the same in all of them. It's an impassioned plea for her father to be saved. Sumayi's father is Hamdullah Abdulweli. In 2020, Hamdullah travelled to Saudi Arabia to perform Hajj. During their pilgrimage, Hamdullah and another man, Met Rozi, were both arrested by the authorities. For the next two years, they were arbitrarily held without trial or charge. 
In January of this year, it was reported that the two men, both residents of Turkey, would be deported to China. Hamdullah Abdulwali and Numamet Rozi are both Uyghur Muslims. Human rights defenders have condemned the extradition. They have warned that if sent to China, the two men will likely face imprisonment and possible torture and even death. The planned deportation is just the latest example of a growing trend in the Middle East. But why are Arab states cooperating with the Chinese government in the persecution of Uyghur Muslims? What form does this cooperation take? And what can be done to protect Uyghur Muslims? Yeah, so China, of course, historically, and you'll see in a lot of diplomatic discourse, there's references to trade in the Silk Road era or the, the voyages of Zheng He, the Chinese um, explorer who went on Hajj. But really, China's our new actor to the Middle East. Starting in the 50s, it began to make its relations with Egypt, which was really its first major partner in the region. But it wasn't really until the, the 1990s when China became a net oil importer. This is Bradley Jardin, research director at the OXA Society for Central Asian Affairs and global fellow at the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute. So China is, is a newcomer overall. Its relations were primarily economic um, in the early years, particularly with Saudi Arabia, regulated around oil trade. But really with the Belt and Road, with 2013, we've seen an escalation basically in relations which have taken on much much wider remit than they had before so not only is it just China's interest and engagement with the Middle East has tracked with its growing need for oil to power its massive expansion and accelerated with the country's Belt and Road Initiative. A vast pet project of China's leader Xi Jinping The Belt and Road Initiative is a global infrastructure development and investment project that covers 70 countries and international organisations. With economic and trade agreements have also come security and cultural cooperation. These security agreements between Arab states and China has been the focus of a new report written by Bradley and his colleague Lucille Greer for the Uyghur Human Rights Project, titled Beyond Silence, Collaboration Between Arab States and China in the Transnational Repression of Uyghurs. So the report focuses on China's transnational repression of Uyghurs in the Middle East. So really what we mean by this term is how China represses, intimidates or even extradites political activists overseas, but not necessarily political activists. Some of them are apolitical, but they're still being targeted. Repression of China's minority Uyghur population is unfortunately not new. For a wider global community, it came to prominence in 2017, when China's President Xi Jinping issued orders that all religions in China should be Chinese in orientation. Since then, numerous reports have emerged from the country's northwestern Xinjiang region, where the vast majority of China's Uyghur population live. Vast, quote-unquote, re-education camps were constructed, and allegations are rampant of forced labour, the mass sterilisation of women, physical and mental torture, mass rape and sexual abuse, and even death. At a mock trial in London in 2021, Kalbanur Siddiq, an ethnic Uzbek teacher from Xinjiang's capital, testified to the abuses she had witnessed at the camp she was forced to work at 
by the Chinese government. The police, the guards in the camp, they didn't treat the male prisoners as human beings. They were treated less than dogs. They couldn't walk out the door in a normal way. They were forced to crawl in and crawl out. They enjoyed watching them be humiliated. The prisoners' suffering was for them their joy. Chinese policies that target the Uyghur population have been branded by numerous states, including the US, Canada, EU and UK, as genocide. But while the repression of the Uyghurs took on a ruthlessly efficient characteristic from 2017, abuses ramped up in the early 2000s, in part thanks to some of those same Western states. The terrorist label, of course, came post-2001 with the onset of the global war on terror. This was codified really with the recognition by both the United States and United Nations of the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, which was an obscure grouping of, of Uyghurs who were in northern Afghanistan. The Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement is an Uyghur Islamic extremist organization who have engaged in a long battle for an independent East Turkestan in the region of China called Xinjiang. The relatively small scale and limited group has ties with Al-Qaeda and in the past have committed terrible atrocities to secure their goal. With the designation of terrorist organisation by the UN and US, which it has been reported came in exchange for Chinese silence on the US invasion of Iraq, Beijing had the tools it needed to target the country's Uyghur population. So the war on terror has been a mechanism through which China's really dehumanized Uyghurs. And it's, it's also essentially securitized traditional elements of cultural practice. Especially post-2017, we've really seen everything we can think of really being branded as extremists, from growing a beard to having a Quran in your, your bedroom to downloading apps for praying. So a broad range of cultural practices, even the refusal to drink alcohol has been seen by China as extremist. China's approach to fighting what they view as terrorism has been endorsed by numerous Arab states. A July 2019 letter to the President of the UN Human Rights Council made clear the position of the signing states. One extract read, Faced with the grave challenge of terrorism and extremism, China has undertaken a series of counter-terrorism and de-radicalization measures in Xinjiang, including setting up vocational education and training centers. Now safety and security has returned to Xinjiang and the fundamental human rights of people of all ethnic groups there are safeguarded. The letter was signed by 37 countries, including Algeria, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Oman, the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan and Kuwait. Qatar was also a signatory but later withdrew its support. The Middle East has obviously become a a key focal point for China due to its historical connections with the Uyghur people, particularly through the Hajj but also through Islamic education, particularly in Egypt. A lot of what we're seeing in terms of the securitization of China's approach to The region and to the Uyghur diaspora there spans a lot from the domestic onset of China's domestic repression. In their reports, Bradley and his colleagues estimated that as many as 292 Uyghur Muslims had been detained or deported from Arab states since 2001. Students and Muslims performing Hajj 
have been the most frequently targeted, with the most high-profile cases occurring in Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. In July 2017, the world became aware of one of the most shocking cases of Uyghur deportation from Arab states. Egyptian police raided universities, shops, restaurants and homes in search of Uyghur Muslims. Many reported being interrogated by Egyptian security officials and Chinese officials in Egyptian prisons. It is believed that 200 students were arrested. 128 are thought to have been released, while 45 are known to have been deported to China, where they faced likely imprisonment and possible torture or even death. They told me from the Skandaria airport at that night, about 12 o'clock, and then I talked to the international media about this. This is Uyghur activist Abdulwali Ayyab. He was in contact with the Uyghur students as they were being arrested and has also worked tirelessly to help other Uyghurs in Arab states who are facing deportation. I personally like contacted with him, so it is really heartbreaking for me. At the time, like I called UNHCR in Egypt, and some of them went to UNHCR and applied for them, but nothing happened until now. They are still hiding in Egypt. And even like UAE, I told them to go to like uh, UNHCR. Even UNHCR gave them the paper. But the problem is they got arrested and they sent back to China. Abdulwali sadly knows all too well what getting deported back to China could mean for the Uyghur students. After studying linguistics in the US, Abdulwali returned to Xinjiang in 2011 to open schools that were dedicated to teaching the Uyghur language. In 2013, he was arrested and accused of illegally raising funds. He was held without charge for nine months, during which period he was denied visits from his family and fell seriously ill. After a one-day trial, he was convicted and sentenced to 18 months in prison. Today, he lives in Norway with his family, but has continued to fight for Uyghur rights. Most of them are students who were studying religion and some of them are they were there for pilgrimage like i feel very like sad because of uh, those um, Uyghurs got arrested during the pilgrimage during the hajj that time so uh, sometimes as a Uyghur intellectual we should explain what's happening to Uyghurs but uh, i feel really hard that how can we explain the Mecca, the holy place, and we believe that the Muslim should be protected in that place. But four Uyghur arrested from that holy place of Allah. It's really heartbreaking. It's really hard to explain to our Uyghur Muslim. Performing Hajj is a sacred part of a Muslim's life, a fact that the Chinese state is well aware of and using to their own ends. Bradley again. Obviously, there are agreements between Saudi Arabia and China for quotas on number of people who can participate in the Hajj. Traditionally, China's top-level officials um, or people connected to the the state um, have received priority to gain those permits rather than the mass population. So it's always been a very politicized application process. 
but increasingly so were even Chinese officials or even Communist Party members who happen to be Uyghur and now treated with suspicion. So there's been a lot more restrictive um, policies with the Hajj of late. And even now, there have been a number of unusual cases, for example, of people being forcibly sent on Hajj with Chinese security officials who attempted to lure activists in safer jurisdictions such as Norway to come and visit their relative where they, they hope to, to detain them in, on Saudi soil. This happened with Norway-based Uyghur Omar Rozi. He told an Uyghur tribunal that his mother was forcibly taken on Hajj. From Saudi Arabia, she repeatedly called her son and urged him to join her. Suspicious, he refused. On their final phone call together, Omar Rozi said he heard people in the background shouting at his mother. He was later called by Chinese police and told that his mother and his siblings would not be released unless he agreed to strict terms related to the Uyghur community in Norway. He was also ordered to act as a spy for the police. In addition to using Hajj as a way of luring activists and monitoring those performing the pilgrimage, the Chinese have combined this oppression with technology to increase their scope. We've also seen more application of surveillance technology for people who participate in the Hajj, for example, there was a report that showed that tracking devices were being applied to Uyghurs to monitor where they were going. We've also seen through the dangers of you know, transnational internet infrastructure where Uyghurs have been traveling to Saudi Arabia and Mecca. They're you know, quote-unquote checking in when they visit a location. When they've returned back to China, this has actually been flagged by the system which identified them as having not received a permit to actually go on Hajj, um, which has led to their detention or arrest. So we're really seeing the problems of this interconnectedness of China um, and Chinese technology, particularly WeChat, etc., and its use overseas, and how this is actually fed back into the security mechanisms in place, particularly the algorithmic surveillance structures within Xinjiang. So there's a lot of dangers of China's overlap of its policing methods within its borders, and now increasingly within the broader Islamic world as well. Technology is also being used to track and monitor Uyghurs who are attending educational facilities abroad, like those who were arrested in 2017. China's built a system of algorithmic surveillance. They call it the Integrated Joint Operating Platform. Essentially what this does is police checkpoints feed in information about individual Uyghurs and it, and it criminalizes certain behaviors. So this system actually flags people who are to be sent to re-education centers if it doesn't meet their norms of what is a trustworthy person. Now, the reason this is relevant for international or transnational repression is because 26 countries are, are blacklisted. These are Muslim-majority countries, including all of the Arab states. So any connection to those, even if you're, if you're domestic and you have a cousin studying abroad in Egypt, that's room for you to be treated with suspicion and sent to a camp. So any connection whatsoever, even to someone studying overseas, ends up with family members being sent to these camps. For the people studying themselves, they're also flagged as a threat. This is, comes with the language of what we're seeing deployed within Xinjiang now. It's very biological. It's the idea of contamination. It's the idea of contamination coming from Islamic regions such as the Middle East and, and coming back into Xinjiang. Uyghurs who study in Arab states are being targeted by the Chinese state for deportation, arrest and re-education. Uyghurs who perform the Hajj and go on pilgrimage to the holy site of Mecca 
are also being targeted for arrest and deportation. But why are Arab states, some of whom who proclaim to hold Islam as a central tenet of their country, cooperating with the state to hand over Uyghur Muslims? Particularly in light of the damning first-hand testimonies that have emerged in recent years. Abdulwali again. The main reason is economical benefit. They have strong tie between like Egypt and China and uh, Saudi Arabia and China and um, the UAE with China and Qatar with China. All of them have a good uh, relationship. This is the first. Much of the economic benefit from this comes from deals and trade related to the aforementioned Belt and Road Initiative. It is not realistic to ask any country, not only Arab states, any country, not to participate this Belt and Road or any kind of economic relation. It's not realistic. It's impossible. But the economical benefit, it doesn't mean that we deny human rights violation. We reject genocide and we silent on repression. It is like uh, business is business, but human dignity is different thing. I don't recommend or I don't suggest or I don't ask any like states not to participate this belt and road or like not to do business with China or something like that. It's not realistic. Yes, uh, the business you should do, you can do and uh, it's okay. But the problem is you shouldn't lose your dignity and you shouldn't ignore the dignity of those people and those persecuted minority there. As for growing repression and whether it's connected to the Belt and Road, there's of course been a lot of overlap. I think one case recently is of Idris Hassan, who was detained in in Morocco, kind of shows the dangers of China's economic presence and when it becomes leveraged for political ends. So with Morocco, there was actually a signing of, of a free trade agreement that led to Um, the adoption of an extradition treaty. And this extradition treaty is now being utilised by local courts as the main mechanism through which Uyghur activist Idris Hassan, who fled Turkey to Morocco, may actually be deported to China. So, of course, the more leverage China has economically, the more um, it can pursue its own security agenda or its agenda for repressing Uyghur diaspora community or silencing any criticism of policies in Xinjiang. Economic trade and an urge for growing prosperity is a strong motivating factor for Arab states to cooperate with the Chinese state when it comes to the persecution of Uyghur Muslims. But it's not the only reason. After the Arab Spring, the Arab country stay away from uh, Western democracy because uh, Western democracy always criticise Arab leaders as a dictatorship, as violating human rights or something like that because of China. They never criticize about human rights issue. And that's another reason they work closely and work together and cooperated very well. And Bradley Jordan. Well, what we've seen with relations with Saudi Arabia, particularly, you know, its relations with the West in recent years have become increasingly fraught. You know, we've had all kinds of um, scandals with human rights practices, Saudi Arabia's own use of transnational repression against journalists overseas who've been murdered um, in consulates. This has really created a lot of discourse in in the West, particularly in the United States, about the future viability of of relations as they are, the status quo with, with Saudi Arabia. 
So Saudi Arabia really needs as many partners as it can get, particularly a partner such as China, which has aligned with what it sees as Saudi Arabia's right to police its own borders as it sees fit. China is far less critical on human rights, and therefore it's an ideal partner for a state such as Saudi Arabia. China is a superpower on the global stage, and the prospects for the likes of the US or EU convincing or forcing China to end its genocide of the Uyghur people are depressingly slim. But although it might be rescinding, the EU and the US do still have some pulling power when it comes to the Middle East. And they can take steps when it comes to protecting the rights of Uyghurs in Arab states. Abdulwali activists like him are set on a path of awareness, sharing their stories to anyone who will listen, including in the Arab world. We should keep telling them. We should keep educating them. And uh, we should keep explaining them. About, because because uh, like uh, those people are innocent. Those people, uh, they don't know anything about what's happening there. Because uh, especially those like uh, Arab states, uh, the media controlled by the government, it's not easy for them to reach the objective news about what's happening to other people or in the world. We should keep telling, and I think the social media is a good way to tell the people what's going on uh, because it's not controlled by a uh, state and another that uh, civil organization. And for Bradley, Western states need to step up and provide lasting protection and increase refugee quotas. And not just Uyghurs within China's borders who managed to get out, which is increasingly few just due to the, the huge securitization and the the difficulty of obtaining passports. But Uyghurs now who are in regions such as the Middle East, we've seen efforts by the US policymakers to try and put pressure on governments in Central Asia to take in Uyghur refugees. But as you know, as our research shows, that's really an unsafe region. And I think increasingly the Arab world's unsafe. So I think European Union and the United States, Canada, their, their allies, they really need to think more about bringing endangered Uyghurs into their borders, which would mean um, opening up their refugee quotas to protect Uyghurs who are fleeing the United Arab Emirates, Egypt or Saudi Arabia. Throughout modern history, Uyghur Muslims have faced appalling abuses at the hands of the Chinese state. During Mao's Cultural Revolution, they were brutalised, beaten and killed. Today they face a ruthless, efficient and merciless bureaucracy of genocide, masquerading as re-education. But for activists like Abdulwali, a hope does endure. A hope not just for a life free from persecution, but also a hope that those Arab countries that are collaborating with China will one day say no. We shouldn't lose hope. I personally believe that human dignity and human honor and human value uh, will never disappear. And if we keep telling and someone should stand up, someone can stand up, someone may stand up or someone feel it's unfair, it's bad, it's so someone may take that action.
After a two-year coronavirus-related delay, the Vagrant Trilogy will be opening to New York audiences tonight at the Public Theatre. Written by the award-winning playwright Mona Mansour, the play delves into the life of Adham and the Palestinian struggle for home and identity. I spoke with Mona this week and started by asking her what the play is about and what inspired her. The play centres on a fictitious scholar named Adham. It sort of asks the question of what happens in your life based on a decision you make in a moment and how might your life look different. In this trilogy, you see him in these two different incarnations of what his life looks like based on what happens at the end of the the first play. And I will say that neither of those forks in the road are what we might look at and say, well, that's great. What a lucky man. It's a painful show, but it's also, I think, filled with a a great deal of, of humor and humanity. So anyway, that's the play. Act one is The Hour of Feeling, and it is set in 1967. And you see him, Adam and Abir, they meet in their small village in Palestine and they go to London to present a talk. He's presenting a talk on Wordsworth. At the end of the play, war has broken out and they have to figure out what to do. The second play is called The Vagrant. That's set in 1982, also in London. And that explores what his life looks like had he stayed in London. The third play is called Urge for Going. And it is set entirely in a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon. We don't name it as Ayn al-Hilwe, but I mean, that's essentially what it was sort of based on. It began as sort of this just exploration of his homeland. And, and then, of course, was influenced by growing up during the Lebanese Civil War, knowing pretty early on that there was such a thing as a Palestinian refugee, the ways in which that history dovetailed with, like, say, the history of Lebanese people, uh, my father. And so I started to just write. Uh, I mean, I I tend to do a lot of research and then sort of try to explore it organically. I don't usually have, like, a mission statement before I start something. If anything, I guess the mission statement I may have had was I just wasn't interested in portraying Adam in particular as sort of a noble, the good, noble, quiet man who's trying to please uh, the, the, the white British folks. He is trying to please them, but he's quite a complicated person. And it's strange because he's, I've now like lived with him for 12 years. And the actor who's going to be playing him in New York has also lived with him for quite some time. With a runtime of three and a half hours, the Vagrant Trilogy is an epic piece of work that took Mona years to craft and complete. She explained to me how being in the thick of this play changed the way she views her own Arab-American heritage. I think the work of writing this play, I think the work of being in close proximity with people from all over the region has changed and continues to change just the way I sort of look at what it is to be sort of Arab-American. I mean, I think, you know, I suppose it's quite obvious that I think the reason I do what I do on some level is I think theater and the arts can do things that other forms of dialogue uh, can't always. Mona's play shines a light on Palestinian issues and explores modern Palestinian history. 
With such a tangled and complicated web, I asked her what knowledge she anticipates an audience to have and how she wants an audience to view her central characters. You know, it's interesting because I think that um, my other, like, sort of colleagues who are, like, Middle Eastern American writers, it, it, this is something we all confront. To what degree do must you educate an audience, right? Perhaps, you know, an American audience doesn't know about a lot of this. Do you take care of them? Do you not? Do you just drop them into the world of the play? Over the number of years that I've been working on this kind of thing, I think, well, listen, yes, I have a Google research document that can accompany my plays because you never want to assume that people do understand the places and the names that you're talking about. And then I start to think, well, my God, if I'm reading Tennessee Williams, why do I assume I know all of those things? And in some ways, my my saying that is because I think a theater can be like, well, I don't know, you know, are they going to be able to follow? And it's like, well, yes, they are. You want them to fall in love with these people, frankly, as complicated people. Let's let them fall in love with them and start to light up the audience's mirror neurons. What is it like to be in that position? What is it like to be Adam? It's 1967. You were the hotshot at Cairo University and suddenly you're in London and somebody asks you something about a part of Wordsworth that you hadn't considered. For many Americans, many white Americans, politics are this thing that's like not in their home. It's not something that stops you at a checkpoint. It's not something that cordons off part of the land. And so what you're allowing people to do, I hope, is to sort of say, okay, what is that like to live that life? What is it like to watch a man who does not center his identity, but it doesn't matter because politics come for him? Yes, of course, I hope people start to understand like that idea that, you know, once you once you leave or you're forced to leave, there is something that is forever changed. Mona's new play is in three parts, the hour of feeling, the vagrant and urge for going. However, the three parts do not follow a linear line. At the end of the first play, Mona's central character is faced with a decision, and parts two and three offer differing outcomes to this decision. I asked Mona why she chose to offer these alternative realities. I I didn't even, I, I will say, I didn't really choose it. The play that I wrote first was Urge for Going, and so I kind of had a sense, well, I really had a sense of where this Adam had needed to end up. This man needed to end up going back to Palestine, uh, being displaced a second time in his life, and then ending up in Anil Hilwev. That's where he needed to end up. I just could not get him emotionally to want to go back. And so I... I wrote, I think, about four or five versions of him going back, one where he doesn't go back, sent them to a playwright colleague. The colleague read them all, and he said, well, the good news is I think you found an ending. The bad news is I think you might have another play here. And Mark, who's very, very imaginative director, the very first time I met him, I said, yeah, yeah, I haven't got the ending to this yet, but, you know, I have to get him back. And and I said, but I just can't seem to want him to do that. And he said, well why like it's fiction so i think it's the kind of thing that perhaps you know um, is done a lot in like novels and such but you know then i got quite sort of excited by that i thought like well you know 
What does that look like? And even though these are not linear, what resonances can exist? Each of those lives can speak to each other in a way that I don't think would exist if it were just this linear piece. The Vagrant Trilogy will be on at the Public Theatre in New York from April 8th to May 15th. Ticket information is available at publictheatre.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced and written by me, Hugo Goodridge, with additional help from Rosie McCabe and Safa Amma. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. (laughs) 